have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'll just say, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. And Tyler and his family who are normally here are off in BC. Uh, He's the youth guy. He's ministering at a youth camp in one of our fellowship churches in Sparwood and Fernie. So uh, uh, amazing group over there. And they have asked our guy to come and preach for the whole week at their camp. So what a blessing it is. But uh, So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Go ahead, open them, turn them on. Hope you're in Psalm 2 by now. They will not be on the screen because I want you down in your Bible, okay? It's important. I could be changing those words up on the screen. It's important you see that this is the Word of God. So Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. Amen? May God bless the reading of his word. So last week we looked at Psalm 1, and we're in a series on Summer in the Psalms, and I said that Psalm 1 and 2 are acting as the gatekeeper to the book of worship, the Psalter, and it's telling us who the blessed man is in Psalm 1, and we understood last week that the blessed man in Psalm 1 is actually our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the only perfect one to ever walk the face of the earth, the one who could truly love and obey God's law and keep it and be obedient to it. But we also looked at the principle behind that. Although Jesus is perfect and he's the only one who can perfectly love God's law and live it out, we are also called as his followers to model Christ, to live it out, to also delight in his word, to also love his word and to meditate upon it. And we can only live the life that Christ has called us to by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in each and every one of you as believers. And now we come to Psalm 2 which shows us that the world is in turmoil and it's in rebellion against God. It's no surprise, you just have to turn on the evening news, that our leaders and our world is in states of constant rebellion against God. There are thousands of examples that I could fill this sermon with showing you of the world's rebellion. We could look at past and present communist regimes and show you how it is against God's design and against God. We could talk about the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle East that is threatening the existence of Christianity to our brothers and sisters over there. But we don't have to look at the extremes. We can just look at ourselves here in the Western world, in Canada, in Drumheller, or maybe Germany, right, where we have people traveling all over here today. We can just look at ourselves and our rebellions against God 
are just maybe a little bit less dramatic than some of these major ones I announced. But we go through our daily lives. We know many people going through their daily lives who just go through the mundane rituals. They go to school, they pay their taxes, they raise their kids without the slightest slant towards Jesus. They don't even consider him. They wage a silent war against this him. And I call this suburban rebellion. It's not immediately obvious that the cause of Christ is winning in our world or even in our neighborhoods. We live in a world that openly opposes God in the big and small ways. And how should we think about this as believers, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ? What should we think about all of this rebellion? Will God do anything about it? He will. That's what Psalm 2 is about. That's the message of Psalm 2, that God has powerfully and decidedly set his son upon the throne to end all of world's rebellion. This uprising isn't new to the 21st century. This uprising against God was ushered in when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. But God will not let it go on forever. It might feel like it. How many of us have been there where it's like, Lord, why do the wicked rage? Like, why are they so successful? Why does it seem like the wicked are so blessed and the righteous, we suffer and we perish? God, will this go on forever? Will you do anything about the injustices that have happened to me in my life, about the injustices that have happened in this world? And he will. God has raised up a king who will destroy the rebellious nature of this world. He has the authority over every person, every nation. Every knee and tongue will bow to Christ and confess that he is Lord. In Psalm 2, the way of the sinner that we saw last week in Psalm 1 becomes more specific and more serious in this psalm. It's a violent insurrection against the God of heaven and the king that he set upon his throne to rule the world. And on the other hand, the righteous man of Psalm 1 becomes more specific and clear too. We see that the Psalm 1 man becomes the Psalm 2 king, the ruling king, the one who has inherited all the world, all the nations, that he is king of everything, all the universe. The Psalm 1 man is the Psalm 2 king. He is the son of God who inherits a throne, and God has given him complete authority over all the nations. And guess what? The world hates this king. The world rebels against this king. But the book ends, the psalm story ends with a promise that the righteous who embrace him are blessed. So the psalm opens again, just like Psalm 1, with two ways to live. You who are sitting here today, you who might be watching online, and of course you up in the balcony, we have two ways to live. Two options. You can either reject Jesus You can reject this king. You can live in suburban rebellion or all-out rebellion against him. Or you can embrace him and be saved. Those are your two options. There is no other trail. For Christians, for you who believe in Jesus here today, this is a message of hope and encouragement to you. The world is lined up against God. It is warring against God, yet Jesus will come and conquer all nations and people. And if you are here and you don't know Jesus, this psalm, the psalmist is reasoning with you. God is appealing to you through this psalm to be wise, to be reasonable. You can't fight God. 
You need to bend your knee to Jesus and honor him with joy today. That's what the psalm is telling us. And true blessing doesn't come from being free to live your life any way you want to. We looked at this last week. We're like fish. We are free to swim in the boundaries God's given us. But as soon as you take yourself out of the water, you're going to die. We, true life, true happiness, true blessings come from living your life in surrender to Jesus. There is no long-term satisfaction in sin. It's instant gratification, but there's no long-term satisfaction. But as we go through this psalm, the first thing we see is that the world is in rebellion. The psalmist is amazed that anyone could be foolish enough to fight God. Again, going back to Psalm 1 to 3, uh, verses 1 to 3, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the ruler, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. This psalm, the psalmist here, David, is not vexed by the nations raging he is not perplexed he's not worried he is not anxious about the nations uh, raging rather David the psalmist he is confused he's bewildered he's astonished he he can't believe that anyone would dare to challenge the Lord to a fight if you could see the psalmist as he was writing this you would see him shaking his head like why do they scheme They can't win. Why do they plot in vain? Why are they picking a fight with God? They can't beat God. Don't they know they can't win? And the word plot in verse uh, 1, saying that the people plot in vain, is interestingly the same Hebrew word for the word meditate that we saw in Psalm 1-2 that we looked at last week. It means to murmur, to talk, and and to talk under your breath, to murmur to yourself. It actually has connections to how a cow eats grass. You know, they chew it, they swallow it, they regurgitate it, they chew it again, it's disgusting, they swallow it, they do it a a few other times. It's kind of like how my son eats his dinner at home. It's just wild, right? So, and this this is the picture of meditating. On God's word. Last week we saw that the righteous person murmurs on God's word. They eat God's word. They chew on it. They extract all the nutrients. But Psalm 2 shows us what the the wicked murmur about. What they meditate on. What they chew. And that's rebellion against God. They live and they breathe it. And we see that this rebellion is a worldwide rebellion. This uprising is not a a, a limited uprising. It's not to one country. It's not to one continent. It's a worldwide rebellion. As we we see in these verses, all the world is in this together. This, This uprising is against God. Both classes, the leaders, the upper class, the lower class, the servants, everyone is against God. The rebellion is worldwide because it's rooted in the sin nature that we all have inherited from Adam. All people are against God. The Bible even says of you and me, before Christ, we were enemies of Jesus. We weren't his friends. It doesn't matter if you go to the smallest town in Canada or the largest city, the people you meet there are against God. And who is this world fighting against? Who are they in rebellion against? Well, the word anointed in verse 2 in your Bible is the name Messiah in Hebrew, And it's the name Christ in Greek. So we see that this rebellion is against God and his Christ. 
In ancient Israel, kings, prophets, and other leaders were anointed with oil to signify, to show that they were set apart by God to do God's work. And because of this, some Old Testament scholars believe that Psalm 2 was written for the coronation of David or some other king after him. But many other scholars, and I would put myself in this camp, not as a scholar, just in the disagreement camp, I would disagree with that sentiment. I don't think this psalm is made or written for the coronation of King David or any other king. I don't think it was ever used for that purpose. For one, for one reason, nowhere in the Old Testament is this psalm linked to the coronation of any king. It's not mentioned, it's not alluded to, that this is the standard practice for the coronations of a king in Israel. In fact, the evidence, when you look at the Bible, points the other way. Very few kings in Jerusalem had neighboring countries under their control who could rebel against the king like verses 1 to 3 are describing. Except for the kings of the reign story of David and Solomon, Israel was mostly a minor power in the ancient Near East. For much of their history, it would have been laughable for any king in Jerusalem to think that he was a major player on the world stage. So to try to fit the psalm on a king in Jerusalem would be like putting on NFL shoulder pads on my three-year-old Levi. They're just too big. They wouldn't fit. And that's what this psalm is to the kings in Jerusalem. It's too big. It's too grand. It doesn't fit them. It's meant to point your eyes to somebody greater. It's meant to point the eyes of the Israelites to somebody greater than David, somebody greater than any fleshly king sitting on the throne in Israel. It is meant to point your eyes to Jesus. F.F. Bruce concludes that it is inconceivable that such notions were entertained in any directly personal way concerning the line of monarchs who followed in Judah. We have here, therefore, either the most blatant flattery the world has ever heard of or else the expression of a great ideal. Meaning Psalm 2 could only apply to one king in history, the perfect king, Jesus Christ. This is not an armed insurrection in the the ancient Near East against David or any other king after him. Psalm 2 describes fundamentally and decisively the rebellion of the human heart against God. Romans talks about this. All are wicked. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This is showing us the condition of the human heart. This psalm is a prophecy. It's prophetic and it points forward to the Messiah. And it points our eyes back to what Christ accomplished on the cross. And it points our eyes forward to how he's coming in the future. In fact, this is one of the most quoted psalms in reference to Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament. When God the Father spoke from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, he used the words of Psalm 2-7. He said, this is my beloved son in Matthew 3.17. The author of the book of Hebrews also quotes Psalm 2 to show that Jesus is greater than the angels and he's a greater than any of the high priests in all of the Old Testament. You can see that in Hebrews 1.5 and Hebrews 5.5. Paul preached also Christ's resurrection from Psalm 2 in Acts 13.33 and the book of Revelation shows us several ways how Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Jesus throughout the book through 1.5, and 12.5. Since Jesus is God's son, the, those who rebel against him are rebelling against God himself. This rebellion is against the Lord and against his anointed, as verse 2 shows us. 
The kings want to break their bonds. They want to break their cords in verse 3, which means they want to break the chains of obedience to God and to his Christ. You can't be for God and against Christ. They can't be separated. I hear this all the time as I walk the streets of Drumheller sharing the gospel with people. Oh, no, oh, I, I believe in God. Oh, but no, no, not that God, not Jesus. I'm okay with the spiritual side of things, but not Jesus. Sorry. You can't be for God and against Christ. There is only one way to the Father, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many paths to Jesus, but there's only one path to God. If you ignore Christ, you ignore God. This is why the scripture says that no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The world has not set itself against the idea of God in general. You can travel most anywhere, and most people are religious or at least spiritual in nature. They are, but they are against this God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Human beings are across the globe are offended by the God of the Bible. They rage against him. And it happens even here in the Western world. But what we see, we have great hope in the face of this raging, that this was all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Jesus both spiritually and physically. We see even in Jesus' physical life here on, on the earth, kings and leaders did rise up against him. Right? Herod fought against Christ when he was just a baby, murdering countless babies to find the Messiah. The leaders of Israel gathered together and to plan how to kill Jesus. Even the early church saw that Psalm 2 was fulfilled in Jesus. When they were persecuted, they applied the words of Psalm 2 in their prayers. Just look at Acts uh, uh, chapter 4. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, How did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, uh, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. But this rebellion against Jesus didn't end when Jesus died. This rebellion continued on in forms that were attacks against the body of Christ, God's people. The Apostle Paul, before he was converted, you know, Saul of Tarsus, heading towards Damascus on his horse to put Christians in chains. The resurrected Lord appears to him, knocks him off his horse, blinds him by a light, and says what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was Paul on his way to go persecute the physical Lord Jesus? No. He was already resurrected. He, sorry, he was already ascended at that point. But he was going to imprison and persecute the body of Christ. Whenever people persecute Christians, they are raging and fighting against the risen Lord Jesus. Near the end of his reign, Emperor uh, Diocletian, who reigned from 284 to 305, he set up two massive pillars in Spain, declaring victory over Jesus. The inscriptions on this pillar read this. 
I, th I think it's cool how they talk about themselves. Diocletian, Jovian, Maximin, Hercules, Hercules, Caesar, Augusti. That's a pretty cool title. <laughs> for having adopted Galerius in the East, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. He thought he abolished the superstition of Christ. This rebellion against Christ continues on even into the 21st century. From people, as we detailed, apathetic towards Christ to actual brothers and sisters in other parts of our world who are dying just because they go to church, who are being imprisoned just because they gather with the saints. And when they gather, many of them worship like it's the last time they will ever worship together. And it's reflected in their urgency and then you flip that on us in the West, and we let a little bit of rain, some weather, or maybe some fatigue keep us from gathering. Because we're apathetic towards the things of God in the West. We make church more of a country club than a, a people that we belong to to worship the living, resurrected Lord Jesus. Christians in the West don't understand what it means to follow Jesus at the cost. We do so, and then we, we jump around, and we insult each other, and other things like that. But we will know what the cost is to follow Jesus in time. It's coming. It's coming. And we will see a great divide between those who are just playing church and those who actually love the Lord Jesus. But you might be thinking, as we read about all this rebellion... As we experience all this rebellion in our day as well, where is God in all of this? What is God going to do about all this rebellion, about all this mutiny, about all that injustice that you have personally felt in your life? What is he going to do? Well, the answer is in verse 4. We see that God responds. In verse 4, it tells us that God just sits there and he laughs. God is not up in heaven, you know, pacing the floors, wringing his hands, calling in his top advisors to advise him. He's not running to a fortified bunker because he's afraid or threatened. No, he sits on his throne and he laughs. And I think that is one of the most terrifying noises that you could ever hear if you're one in rebellion against God. The one I am raging against is laughing. It's kind of like how my older brothers would just put their hand on my head and I'd try to, you know, punch them. And they would just laugh at me. He's sitting there and laughing. Let's read it together. It says in verse 4, He who sits, on his, uh, sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. This is the only place in the Bible where we see it says that God laughs. And when does he laugh? When his creations, when his creatures rebel against the Creator. It's so ridiculous that laughter is the only response. God laughs because this uprising doesn't threaten him in the least. The nations rage, but God doesn't have to rage. He doesn't have to set himself up like the kings of this earth. He doesn't have to take counsel with anyone. God doesn't even bother to stand up. He just sits there in the heavens and he laughs. Isaiah 40, verse 15 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. We serve a mighty God, amen? amen. 
God's laughter humiliates his enemies. He holds them in derision. God is not laughing because he looks at the world's rebellion as some silly joke. Don't read it that way. God takes sin seriously. And if you don't understand just how serious God takes sin, look at Jesus who hung bloody on a cross, who was mutilated and beaten and tortured and crucified and not only suffered at the hands of man but was crushed under divine wrath so that you might live. You who are in rebellion against God might have a chance at salvation. He was crushed because of your sin and my sin. He takes sin extremely serious. And what do we do in return as humans? We drag his name through the mud. We ruin his world. We harm men and women who bear his image. And we war against his son. Part of God's triumph is holding his enemies to public disgrace. He did this supremely through Jesus' death. The scriptures say that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. You can read that in Colossians 2.15. God's mocking laughter is a part of his judgment on sinners. And after his laughter, and we've got to remember, this is in the presence of all the nations that are gathered to war against him. And he laughs. And then he just simply opens his mouth and says in verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what we see is first God speaks. And God speaks words, and his word, in spite of the nation's hatred, in spite of their gathered strength, the wisdom of their counsel, their plotting, and in spite of all their rage, his word stands firm. In the beginning, just look at the, look at the power here. In the beginning, God said what? Let there be light. And there was light. When God speaks, universes are formed. He is a powerful God. And all all the power in the world will not stop God's word. And God established his king with the same power that he used in creation to establish his king on the throne. And nothing will stop the rule and reign of Christ. Pharaoh tried to destroy the plans of God and his word, but instead, what did he do? He ended up caring for Moses and educating him in his palace. Haman plotted to destroy the Jews, but he was hung on the gallows that were built for another. The leaders of Israel tried to put Jesus to death, and it succeeded, and they thought they destroyed him. And instead, God used the cross to triumph over sin and save his people. Paul and Silas were imprisoned and beaten, and through their jail and their suffering, the jailer and his family came to Christ. The emperor Diocletian sets up two pillars proclaiming victory over Christ, but just seven years later, Constantine comes to power and Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. God's word stands, church, and nothing can stop it. And it still stands today. Jesus is still God's king by the strength of an unbreakable decree. And in spite of opposition that we see in the world, God's church has progressed forward 
It has not been crushed. Just look at some of these stats. The kingdom of Christ has grown to the point where 70% of Christians in the world do not even come from the Western world. That's Canada, United States, and Europe. They're actually coming from other parts where we used to send missionaries to, and they're going, wait a minute, you guys have a problem in the West. You don't believe the Bible anymore. And they're sending them back. And praise God they are, because we need it. At least 50% of Christian missionaries today come from non-Western worlds. 50%. In the Middle East, more people have come to Christ in the last 25 years than have come to Christ in the previous 1,400 years since the rise of Islam. Did you hear that? In the last 25 years, salvations are blowing up in the Middle East. And thankfully, we have fellowship missionaries there that are serving There are at least 3 million Christians in the Arab world, and roughly 2 million of those three have come to Christ from a Muslim background. They were raised in Islamic belief and converted to Christianity. Church, God has spoken. His word will stand, and he has set Jesus as king over all creation. Do you believe that? Are you sure? Do you believe that? Amen. And lastly, we see Christ proclaims. In this third section of the psalm, the Messiah speaks for himself. God's king is not the strong, silent type. God's king is a preacher. It's just like when an army officer will come in and take over a new command. He always brings with him his written orders that he is now in charge of this platoon or whatever it might be. So if a man takes over without those written orders, he is breaking the order, the chain of command, and is acting on his own. And Christ is doing the same thing. He repeats God's decree to prove that he is the legitimate right to rule the world. In verses 7 to 9, the king announces his identity, his destiny, and his authority. So first, looking quickly at his identity. In, in ver, uh, chapter 2, 7, he says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When Christ declares that he is God's son, he identifies himself in two ways. As God's son, he is connected horizontally to God's people and vertically to God. As God's son, Christ identifies himself as a son in close relationship to God. He knows God as a son knows his father. He obeys as a son obeys his father. He represents God as a son represents his father. And he shares God's life as a son who is given life by his father. And because he is God's son, he is the legitimate heir to the throne. As God's son, Christ shares the very life of God himself because he is God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity. As God's son, Christ is also connected horizontally to you and to me as God's people. Much earlier in the Old Testament, God called Israel his son when he sent Moses to Pharaoh. He he instructed him to say these things. He said, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my people go uh, uh, so, so that they may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. God called the whole nation of Israel his son several times throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, and Jeremiah, and, and Hosea, being God's son was at the heart of what it meant for Israel to be God's people. 
The king is God's son because he represents all the people. This is setting up the beautiful language of the gospel that we believe. So when God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever, what did he promise? He said, I will be to him his father, and he will be to me a son in 2 Samuel. God's covenant with his people would be focused on his representative, the king. Why? Because when Christ announces that he is God's son, he claims to represent all of God's people as their king. It's a horizontal statement. And this is the reality is at the heart of your and my salvation. Think about it. He embodies us in himself so completely that his obedience can be counted as your obedience. His death can be counted as your death. And his resurrection can be counted as your resurrection. And his eternal life can be counted as your life. This is the great exchange that Martin Luther talked about. He gets our sin, our guilt, our dirt, our mud, and we get his righteousness. That is extra nos, which means it's alien righteousness. It's not produced in us. It's given to us by another. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. We are saved because Jesus is the Son of God. He is our representative. So when Christ proclaims God's decree, you are my son, today I have begotten you, he is proclaiming his relationship with God and with his people. And then we see Christ's authority. In verse 9 he says, You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. God has commissioned his Messiah to use whatever force is necessary to subdue the world and to end its rebellion. The word shall there implies that many will resist and many will be shattered by Christ. Just like a king that sends in his troops to put down an uprising in a rebellious province, he first, before he sends in the troops, he sends in some messengers under a flag of truth to reason with them. And if they reject the proposal from the king, then he comes in and wipes them all out. And he is acting, this king is acting on the good of the nation, and he hopes he doesn't have to take this drastic step. And in the same way, Christ calls everywhere right now to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ and to believe on him. Right now, this is your chance. God has charged Christ to end the world's rebellion. He has the power and the authority to work out what God has given him to do. And he is doing that work right now. Today is the day for you to surrender to Christ, to accept him in the season of grace before he comes to subdue the world and to end its rebellion. Because church, he's not coming as the gentle lamb like he came first. He's coming as the conquering, ruling, reigning king. Jesus declared his identity and his authority while he was on earth, and then he charged his followers to go into all the world, preaching his identity and his, and his calling and his gospel message throughout the nations to usher people into his coming kingdom. The apostle announced the news that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And after them, there was evangelists, pastors, and teachers who have carried on the preaching of Jesus Christ. And when Christ's ambassadors speak, when you share the gospel with people, it is actually Christ preaching through you. 
Christ speaks through his messengers who preach the word of God. Paul taught this in Ephesians 2.17, telling the Ephesians that it was actually Christ who came to them and spoke peace. Just look for a moment. And he, that is Christ, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. We know that was actually Paul and a few of his companions. But he's saying, I'm giving you the messages of God. Christ speaks today through his messengers who preach and are faithful to his word. John Calvin said, as often, therefore, as we hear the gospel preached by men, we ought to consider that it's not so much they who speak as Christ who speaks by them. It's a humbling, humbling realization. This means that the missionaries, the evangelists, the pastors, the preachers that Christ raises up and sends out are fulfilling the Son's proclamation from Psalm chapter 2. Christ extends his rule throughout the world by extending his word through his faithful servants. Extending his church throughout the world. He shall build his church. And what will not prevail against it? Sorry? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church that God builds. God is establishing his church throughout the world in these local contexts. And we all have the same goal. Well, hopefully we do is to see those who are in rebellion against the living God give up their futile fight and surrender to the everlasting, all-satisfying God who has an inexhaustible fountain of joy that we have been invited in to relationship with, to commune with, to love with, and be loved by. Jesus made a way that scoundrels could be saints, that enemies could be friends, and that orphans could be sons and daughters. And that's an invitation for all of us here, which is point C. The Spirit invites. Verse 10 says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. This appeal is to God's mercy and his patience as he holds out his hands to a rebellious world. The work of the Holy Spirit is to lift up Christ and to draw all men and women to him, which he is doing in this verse. And as as we looked at the strong language in verse 9, now we see the tender voice of God reason with us. And this tender voice calls us to be sensible, to be wise. He invites you to examine yourself and to consider God's decree in Psalm 2. And the words there in verse 10 that says, now therefore, mean that this is not a knee-jerk or an emotional response. You need to ponder, to make a logical conclusion from what you just saw in these verses about the coming king. We need to sober up. We need to come to our senses. God is patiently reasoning with us. And then verses 11 to 12 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That's a mature and complex response from from the psalmist here. This isn't, it's showing us, this isn't an emotional driven response by church manipulation. Oh, I see a hand, come on forward. Okay, God is waiting for you. We're not manipulating anyone here. This is the right and proper response to God when you behold his majesty within his word. We know that we need to respond rightly to God and we only do so by first seeing his beauty and his goodness clearly and we respond in joy because of who he is. But also that we behold the terrifying side of who God is. 
that he has the ability to wipe everything out. And we like to skip over that in our, in our Canadian Christian faith. Oh, we just want to make God all lovey and dovey. God can wipe out everything, and he will, and make it all new. And you must understand that for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. You can't skip that part. You must see his terrifying power to clearly see him, who he is, and love him, that you're on his side. There is a blessing for those who love and honor Christ. I left it out. It's at the tail end of verse 12. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's your promise today. Our only hope is to embrace Jesus Christ. God has sent him, set him on the throne to deal decisively with the world's rebellion. So which path are you on? Are you rebelling against God? Or are you for God? Because of his amazing grace that he has given you. And that offer is open to all you who are here today. That offer is open to all the world. Come and take refuge in God. Because there is no refuge from him. But there's only refuge in him. Amen? Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this promise that is found in Psalm chapter 2. God, we thank you that you are a ruling and reigning king. That, Lord, even though the nations rage, and Father, sometimes we scratch our head and go, how are you going to work this all out for good? We know, Lord, that you are the sovereign God who holds all, knows all, and decrees all. Father, we believe and confess your meticulous sovereignty, Lord, that you, O oh Lord, are in control. And that brings us great joy and peace. As, as Spurgeon said, your sovereignty is like the pillow that our head lays upon within the storm, O Lord. We know you're in control. Come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. Correct all the wrong and usher in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.